last week we took a break from this verse by verse series in John, and we're doing that again. I had some things on my mind about this subject that I think are pretty important. That I think we need to. I always say this. I guess it's going to be the case every time. If it's not, I guess I'll tell you. These are what I'm saying here is something that we need to always know and always use, and it'll be valuable always to you. And I, I try to give those type things every week. This is everybody needs this. And I think after we're done here, you'll see what I mean. And really, the last message was like that, too. I want to read Romans 1, 15 through Romans 1, 17. And the title of the message is, uh, I've altered it a little bit from what I wrote there, The Gospel for a Lifetime. I have up there the gospel for life, and you could teach two things by that title, and they're both true, having to do with timing and what the gospel does. So I'm reading from the modern King James Version. So as much as in me lies, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. The justified shall live by faith. This gospel, this message that we talk about, is the most unbelieved thing in the world. That's a fact. The gospel is the most unbelieved thing in the world, but yet it is the most needed thing in the world because it's tied to the most important thing in the world. It's eternal life in Christ. Now, right from the get-go, I want to ask the question, is there a difference in saying we need the gospel from saying we need Christ? Are those two different things? Can we say that? Shouldn't be. If we have the right gospel, it shouldn't be. Why is that? Here, here's why. I'm going to look at this thing just real quick in four layers. And I've, I've said this before in times past. And I think I did one message on these four things. So I'm not going to take 50 minutes to tell you these four things. <laughs> here's why they shouldn't be different. The purpose of God before time, in other words, the covenant between the Father and Son, the purpose of salvation, lays out some truth. It decrees what's going to happen, what Christ is going to do. And then in time, the obedience of Christ in his actual person and work in history, him performing it, is the performance of of that decree, that purpose, that will in time. He, it agrees. Just what the Father said should happen, and the agreement they made that has to happen, he did it. They agree. No conflict. And then the gospel, that's what we're talking about today, that record, that report, that message, that truth that we tell, that gospel agrees with those first two things. The gospel just tells what exactly happened, and that gospel is also related to what God decreed to happen. 
So far, all three are the same. And then as God gives faith to the elect, they believe that message in the same way. Nothing changes. And they all agree. Everything is yes and amen. All the promises, they're congruent, they're harmonious. They all, it's all, there's no lies. There's no changes. There's no disharmony. There's no divorcing things from one another. The purpose of God before time, the act of Christ in time, the message that explains that, and then what we believe about it. They're all the same. That's why when we say the gospel and we say Christ, they are the same. We've made statements before that Christ is the gospel. Why shouldn't we? Because he is the truth, right? Christ is the good news. Of course, when we talk about Christ, we just don't say Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, 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 and never explain anything about what he did or even who he is. There's doctrine and theology that's wrapped up in all that purpose and the, and the actual event and the record and what we believe about it. There's, it's chock full of doctrine and theology, truth, in other words. So I think when we bring this thing up about all these things are the same and there's no changes, and we say, if we believe the right gospel or the gospel of the Bible They'll be the same. And some people might chuckle and say, well, well, every gospel says the same thing. It's about the personal work of Christ. And Well, I'm not going to stop and do a 20-part series on a false gospel. I mean, we've done that over 17 years. We know that all the gospels out there, the majority of quote-unquote gospels, are not the true gospel. And they won't work, as we'll see a little bit later. They're not going to work to save God's people. Actually, the gospel pulls them out of the other gospels they used to hold to. And uh, that's we'll talk a little bit about that. We already pretty much know that. So there's no buffet of gospels. There's only one, and the rest are fake. We know that. And last week when we talked about come out from among them and be separate, we, we talked about that. We talked about coming out from our false religion, from idolatry and dead works and uh coming out from among those that claim to believe the gospel but don't know the gospel we know, we are to separate ourselves from them because they are unbelievers. Now we know that the importance of the gospel in evangelism, we read that in our text here. That is evangelism, that's the preaching or declaring of the good news of Christ. So we know that's important. So we know that we need the gospel to come to Christ. Nobody's going to come to Christ by faith unless they have the right gospel. Now, just a quick note here also, and all these little quick notes, they could be messages in and of themselves. And I've written a lot of different articles on these little, little small points. But we, I know I have been, and probably some of you have been charged with being hyper-Calvinist. The classic definition of a hyper-Calvinist is that does not evangelize. But another definition, a newer definition, I guess, is one that would supposedly take something too far, make something too hard doctrinally. Like they look at me and they say, you're making it too hard. It's not that difficult. We've talked about how that they are the ones that are making it hard. We are the ones that have the simple gospel, the Christ alone gospel. They're the one that are adding conditions. 
And but we are the ones because we will not compromise are called hyper Calvinists. It's because we won't compromise. That's what's hard about it. Because we stick to the offense of the cross and we say no other message that doesn't have the offense of the cross is not a gospel. And they say hyper Calvinist. And I don't care. So what's weird about it is we are the ones ensuring that we do have a gospel and the right gospel so that we can evangelize with that gospel, which guards against classic hyper-Calvinism that says you don't need the gospel. They're the ones saying you don't need the gospel or you can use a false gospel, which is saying the same thing as you don't need a gospel. You see how the accusation's turned on its head and it's pointed right back to them. It's like Paul did in Philippians 3 when he first started talking about some things there that how that uh, the Pharisees, which he used to be, used to call the Gentiles dogs and he called them dogs. That's what's happened here with this subject. So here's the point of the message. We need the gospel after we believe it. Believers need the gospel. So we, we believe it and are saved and some, if not most reasons, that we need it after we're saved are the same reasons we needed it before we are saved. So as we get on through here, I'll try to um, get this done in a timely manner without going too long. This is worthy of more parts than one, but I'm going to try to get it done in one. Notice uh, if you're in Romans 1 still, just want to introduce it to who he's talking to in its context. Verse 7 says, So Paul's writing to all those that are in Rome, and he says, Beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved of God. Just means they're loved by God. You ever wonder why some of the apostles do this? Paul does it. I know John does it. I didn't look up if Peter did it. More than likely he did. But if God supposedly loves everybody, why would he come around here and say, you're loved of God, if God already loved everybody. I think that's a pretty good hint that he's being particular and specific about God loves his people. God only loves the elect. And in that act of God's love, he separates them from the world in Christ. And this is the manner of which he loves and chooses his people is in Christ. Let me read a verse real quick. Romans 8, 39 says, Nothing shall be able to separate us. The last verse in Romans 8. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The manner in which God loves is in, by, and through, and because of, conditioned on Christ. Now, back in our text, notice how interested the Apostle Paul was in seeing these people in Rome that he's writing to and fellowshipping with them in the gospel. In verse 11, it says, For I long to see, he's looking forward to it, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to you for establishing of you. And this is to be comforted together with you by our mutual faith, both yours and mine. So this is a the impartation of a spiritual gift. It's not talking about some kind of like a charismatic thing where Paul lays his hands on people and prays and supernaturally, and he, he transfers some kind of a 
you know, power to these people with his apostolic authority. That's not what this is talking about. <laughs> Further saying from the truth. He's talking about a building up or edifying of these people through the word of God that he was gifted to teach, to give them knowledge, to give them peace and assurance concerning the faith, the mutual faith that they had. So he was looking forward to it. Verse 13, it says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I, I purposed to come to you, but was kept back until now, the present. Notice this, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles like yourselves. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And what he's saying here is, is he's looking forward to coming to him in the verses previous where he talks about imparting the spiritual gift. He's talking about this is going to this is going to cause fruit to come from you because of me ministering the word to you. I'm a debtor, he says in verse 14, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. Whether it be the non-Jews who are philosophical about things and know a lot of things, or to the rough and tumble backwoods desert people, whatever. Either I'm indebted to both, but I'm looking forward to dealing with you. Now, this was Rome. There was a, there's a big center, big city, a center of all kind of philosophical ideas. And I think Paul was craving to shoot all these things down. You know, the weapons of warfare are not carnal. And he's like just ready to give truth and teach with the word of God and to tear down these strongholds that were in this city that everybody talked about when they went to the marketplace, all these different theories and all kind of false Greek gods and just all kind of different religions that were against the truth. Now, we're getting to the heart of the matter here, verse 15. I want us to see this. As much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are also in Rome. He's ready, not saying that he wasn't equipped before. He's, he's craving it, that's what he's saying. I'm chomping at the bit, you know, and tied to that idea I just said about this city with all the just baloney in it that he's wanting to just tear down with the truth of the gospel. So he's ready. He wanted to before and something brought him away. But now here, you know, he's anticipating this time. I remember before I was a believer that the gospel message was said only to be for evangelism. That's all it's for. It's just to quote unquote, get people saved. You got to give them the gospel, get people saved, right? That's all it's for. Not only that, I was told that the gospel message was simply a historic story about the physical death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It does include that. It does. But it's more than that. Since then, I have learned that the gospel is also for believers. And I have learned that the gospel is really what the death of Christ accomplished. That's, that's the heart of the gospel. It answers that question. What the death of Christ accomplished. Now, if the gospel was only historical facts of the physical death, burial, and resurrection, you would ask, what about those facts of the physical? I mean, so what? This guy who lived in this place 
did this thing. Why? The historical bare bones facts of physical death, burial, and resurrection doesn't tell us the how and the why. The gospel addresses both the how and the why. Basically drives us back to that question. What did the death of Christ accomplish? See, when we start making distinctions about who is saved and who is lost, who is our brother, like last week, we have to know, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. We have to know who unbelievers are. Just any Joe Blow that says, I believe in that Christ physically died, buried, and resurrected. And they disassociate that from their selves, their sin, salvation. Uh, who cares of just that event unless it's tied to how and why. It doesn't have any value unless it's tied to how and why. So uh, I've mentioned this before, the how and the why, it, it goes beneath the surface of the physical. Do we understand this? If we just look at the historical death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that's physical, and we can see that with our senses. Getting back to evidential apologetics, which we reject, we believe presuppositional apologetics, so we listen to what God says about the how and why, and that's the gospel. Rather than there's some guy on the cross, he's dying, and he's buried, and he resurrected. As far as faith is concerned, investing faith in something, the how and the why goes beneath the surface of the physical. It's a spiritual teaching. It's a spiritual truth. And we must be alive in the spirit to understand spiritual truths. You know, there were people <coughs> present when Christ died, saw him die. Maybe even seen him afterwards. And some of them weren't saved. Some people would say, man, if you if you were there, how could you not believe? There's, there's no understanding of total depravity, of regeneration, of faith as a gift. So it's, it's the how and why. It's what God says about what that death meant and how it saved sinners. So this is by faith, not by sight. The physical punishment that those people sat there and watched, it didn't explain why he was being punished, how he was being punished, who was punishing him, and what that punishment ended in, satisfaction, these things like this. The physical viewing of that did not explain that. This has to be revealed. And religion really is just, they tell a bunch of stories without any real spiritual truth behind them. And the best they'll do is they'll talk about the moral connection to a Bible story. Jesus is our example. We should be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? You know, you got different things you wear, jewelry and stuff. So back in, um, come back to verse 15, that in your mind there for a minute. Let's compare some of these reasons why both believers and unbelievers have really the same need. Verse 16 says, for, which means because. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You know, that, that's one reason why he was ready. He said he was ready to come and preach the gospel. He's ready because he's not ashamed. If you're not ashamed of something, you're ready to talk about it. Can we say that Paul is, I know some people get scared when you use this language, he was proud of the gospel? I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. It's not something in himself. 
Am I proud of Christ? <laughs> yeah. I used to be proud of me. See, that's the point. Some things have changed. I used to have that type of a pride that I counted on for salvation, and now Christ took the place of that. And I now am ashamed of my pride that I had before. So things flipped. So he's not ashamed, so he's ready. He's ready to brag and boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's one reason, because now as a believer, we switched, just like Paul did in Philippians 3. He listed all those things he said he used to count on. So I'm actually ashamed of those now. I count them loss and dung, so that I may win Christ, be found in him, not having my own righteousness. So think of the sinner. Think of yourself as coming to Christ by faith for the first time when, when Christ was revealed to you. And it was revealed to you that your righteousness is something that God hates. And what you needed to do at the time was flee to Christ because God hates the thing you held the best. He hates it. Therefore, the irresistible grace of you fleeing to Christ for the remedy, which is him producing this perfect righteousness for justification. The switch took place there when you changed things you were ashamed of and things you were proud of. The things switched. Should that change? I mean, we, we've studied different forms of legalism. And now those that talk about they've been saved, all they want to talk about is the things they do after they're saved. They never want to get back to pointing to Christ. It's always talking about some, I can't remember that stupid video on the false religion page, some type of a payment for peace. And it had to do with your life lived out and completely turned over. Dr. Stephen Lawson's video. Can't remember the name of it, but it'll cost you everything, right? That's the focus of a lot of people's life now. They want to focus on this idea of supposed progressive sanctification. And uh, scary, scary. And this is, this is why we need to continue in the gospel, which deals with both justification and sanctification. Some people uh, act as if they have like grown out of the gospel. They've matured. I don't need that anymore. You know what I mean? There's, there's other things. There's higher ground now. And the gospel's for when I was a little baby Christian. And these people, they, they never understood the gospel in the first place. So the, the ones that believe the gospel, they have, a, they have a new hope. And they have a new shame. Their new hope is Christ. And their new shame is their self-righteousness. So then he tells us the reason why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Look at the second part of verse 16. Because, for or because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Paul here is saying that it is the means, not a means, as if there's more than one, of God in his wisdom, he sovereignly appointed us to be called out with this gospel, by this gospel, to come to Christ for salvation. So he's saying that this gospel message, this record, 
this report, as Isaiah called it, is the, the means by which God calls sinners to himself through Christ. That's why he's not ashamed of it. If it's good enough for God to say, this is my one and only appointed means to do this. Paul agrees. He says yes and amen to that idea. He embraces it. He says, I'm not ashamed of that. Notice it says, to everyone who believes. Believes what? The gospel. Remember, again, it's the, the, the record or the, the truth of what Christ actually accomplished when he died. This is what this is about. And nobody is a believer until and unless they believe the gospel. They can't consider themselves believers. We've seen throughout the New Testament, it talks about those that believed on him or believed this, that, and the other. And we saw later it didn't, it didn't pan out, that they didn't believe the truth. They, again, just were using sight and they weren't given faith. And since the just shall live by faith, we know where faith is generated. The Spirit imparts spiritual life. We know that because we're, we come in the world in spiritual death, dead in our trespasses and sins. So the Spirit imparts spiritual life for the ability to have the Word of God engrafted or worked in us, giving us faith or creating faith in us. God is a creator of faith. That's how he gives it. That's a lot different. I, I said it that way. The spirit imparts spiritual life and engrafts the word in us and works faith in us by creating it in us rather than offering us faith. <laughs> These are worlds apart. These ideas are worlds apart. He doesn't offer them faith and then sees what they'll do with that faith. You hear language like the Arminian and the Calminian says that he'll dance you up to the door and then you you got to open the door, go through it or whatever. When's the last time you saw a dead person doing any dancing anyway? Romans 10, 17 says, Then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That there again, that stresses the means. For the believer, this is something that we grow in. Again, what's the topic today? The fact that believers need the gospel too, right? After salvation. So we grow in this and we do it by growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We grow in the gospel. That's why when uh, we talk about the gospel and we're so strict and precise about keeping the truth that we talk about the gospel congruent with the truth that actually happened when Christ was here, we, we try to be precise about that because it is the truth and that's what sets us free. We don't want to pollute it with lies. When we talk about that, people say, so you're demanding perfect knowledge, which means there's no space for growth. <laughs> no, no, we grow in this, in, in all truths that we believe, we grow and mature in these truths. God gives enough to bring us to Christ with. 
So these are, again, the idea of the hyper-Calvinist charge, it's, that is almost saying the same thing, that you have to have this perfect theological knowledge. I don't know anybody, the worst person that I wouldn't hang with that judges too much, he doesn't even say that. These are just false things thrown up there to just make people shrink back right away. So there's this growth involved, and not only do we grow in this truth and in the Word of God, by the Word of God, we, we feed on it. It is our for our spiritual health, ongoing. So that's why we need the gospel after we're saved, for our ongoing spiritual health. So we see the life-giving aspect of the importance of the gospel. It involves the mind. It involves the new mind. We're given a new mind, a new heart. He creates a new heart. That's the promise in the Old Testament about what happens under the, the new covenant. And this new mind, it runs, or it's, in other words, it's fueled by the truth. And the Spirit leads us there. Testifying of Christ all the way through. Remember the uh, Christ's prayer in John 17. You don't have to turn there. You should have this memorized. Verse 17 says, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Set your people apart with your truth from the ones that are not believing that truth. It goes with the message last week. Be not unequally yoked. And by the way, those that don't believe the truth are separated by the lie. We believe in double predestination. But that is the means that's used in God through the Spirit, the sanctification of the Spirit, that part of sanctification. The Word of God is used. The Gospel is used. And that's that's what we're talking about, the believer and the Gospel. After he believes it, he continues to use it, and it keeps him separate from the world. How do we know how not to be like the world? We've got the truth. We study the truth. We go into the truth. Uh, we, might, we might see different aspects as we grow in the truth. What it means when you say world, I'll, maybe the self-righteous Pharisee would say, stay out of the world. Uh, we might learn some things about that because it might be a legalistic spin on what the word world means. Might be the commandments of men that turn from the truth, Titus two fourteen. So, how long does the Spirit work in the believer to cause growth? Let's turn to uh, keep a place there in uh, Romans. Yeah, I'm used to saying John. The last verse I looked at was John seventeen seventeen. Keep your place in Romans and go to Philippians chapter one. How long, the question is, how long does the Spirit work in a believer to cause this growth? Is there a point in time where we can retire from the gospel? I'm done with the gospel. I don't, I don't need, I'm done in that. I don't need it anymore. This is what the question we're asking. Verse 6. Paul says, being confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. That's a really popular verse. And people, I think, when they say this, most people, they, they kind of really, they divorce it from the gospel. And they just talk about this 
progressive sanctification of the spirit idea. Um, most of the people I've heard quote it, do that. And then they'll tie it to chapter 2, verse 13, the fear and trembling thing, right? Well, go back a little bit. Look at verse 3 of Philippians 1. I thank my God upon uh, every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my request for you all with joy. Why? What for? For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. See, it's crouched right in the context. <clears throat> Do you think Paul meant for everybody to divorce verse 5 from verse 6? No, it's right there. Now, just notice that verse. That kind of just proves our overall point that the gospel is for a lifetime. He's talking to believers in Philippians. He says he's thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. Well, what do you mean, Paul? I thought once people believe, they kind of retire from the gospel and they go on to something else, something advanced. It's not what he says here. He, he brings it out as like the biggest deal. You remember... It, this is on our website. Uh, we had it on the board for a long time. There are four main functions of the church. Worship, edification, apologetics, and evangelism. Guess what's used in all four of those? The gospel. This is why we fellowship in the gospel. This is why we need the gospel after we believe the gospel. And again, it's more than just... Hey, Christ physically died, buried, and was resurrected. Do what you want with that. No. It's a lifetime of the how and the why. It can't be exhausted, the how and the why. Where do you find that in Scripture? You have to have eyes to see what God says. Pay attention to what God says. I heard a guy uh, at a conference a similar story, uh, Charlie, we were talking uh, about the ark, you know, one church talked like when you talk about knowing the ark, you really shouldn't bring this technicality of Christ being any part of it. Just talk about this historic event. Don't talk about how the ark was a type of Christ and all that. That's like, skip too deep. Just talk about this little story. And maybe touch on the rainbow. That, that's a cherry on top, you know. It was one of those spiritual truths that goes below the surface of the physical and talks about the how and the why. It was an example I didn't have in my notes, and that's why it's gone forever. Now, we talk a lot about the importance of assurance. We've talked a lot about it lately. And how that, I believe this is a fact, that assurance is the very essence of faith. You're gonna, your faith looks to the object of faith boldly. And you're going to understand and agree with what you're believing in. You're not going to believe with doubt. That doesn't mean that there are never doubts along the way. By the way, that's another reason. That's why I'm bringing this up. We need the gospel after we're saved for assurance purposes. And our assurance should grow as we mature. Not because we get better and we continue to look inside, but we continue to see as we mature and we are humbled, we see the honesty of who we are. An example is Paul. You know, there's 
I don't have the text in front of me, but there's three stages of Paul's growth. At the very end, he was like saying, oh, wretched man, you know, that's at the end. So that's how this, this is how this works. But assurance is the essence of faith. And I noted this, which will help prove that point. It'll help prove that point that wherever our assurance is, is where our faith is. In other words, whatever our assurance is in, that right there is the object of our faith. If I have assurance in what I'm doing, I have just made the object of faith inside me my assurance. So these things have to go together. Faith and assurance have to look to the same object. If it's not looking to Christ, the, the message of Christ in the gospel, then you're looking back to self. There's another place to look. So this is uh, probably the, one of the most important ongoing reasons for the believer's need to continue in the gospel after they're saved. The utility of the gospel is primarily and most importantly for their assurance, their essence of faith. The just shall live by faith. So you've got to continue that mindset that my faith is object is outside of myself. It's not that I, I jump start, get kick-started by, uh, isn't that what Paul talked about in Galatians? Where you said foolish that you started in the spirit, you're going to end in the flesh? That's what people are doing today with some of these goofy uh, perverted doctrines, how that they twist sanctification to be Conditional, really, on in final salvation, they condition their salvation on how well they did in their so-called sanctification. Now, going on, it says in verse 17, For in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, just shall live by faith. Here's your word for means because. Why? That's the question. Because. Why? goes back to the gospels of power of God and the salvation. Because in this gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. That's why. And I want to go further. I think I've said this maybe before. This is why the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. This reason right here is why it's the power of God and the salvation. Because in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. That's what makes it powerful. Take that out, it's not powerful. In other words, it won't work. I think this is vital here to understand this, to get a grip on this, what this means, and I'll try to um, say a few things about it, and we're getting close to the end. That is the reason, is because in this gospel, there's something that makes it have the power of God to save. Otherwise, it won't. And that's something is the righteousness of God revealed in it. Now, in brief, this refers to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can just say that in a nutshell. Nobody likes theology in a nutshell, so let me take it out of a nutshell and explain a little bit more. Uh, somebody said a joke about that. It's like, you don't want to be in a nutshell. You know, that what you're trying to say is in a nutshell. In other words, it's brief. But the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, why do I say that it is in the end, the summation of it is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this, this what this does, this further shows the how and the why of the gospel. It shows this, that God, who is righteous, he has the essential attribute of righteousness. 
And having that essential attribute of righteousness, he demands a perfect righteousness because he's holy, he's unchangeable, and he's a God of justice. So it shows, because he's righteous, it shows what his demand is. Just like him, perfect righteousness. Who is just like him? The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ comes along and fulfills those demands. And the gospel focuses on how he did that. And he fulfilled those demands by by keeping the law and coming to the cross and having sin imputed to him and uh, dying under the wrath of God until, not before, until he perfectly, completely satisfied that wrath. That's called propitiation. just means satisfaction of law and justice. And he did that so that the father would be able to, so that he could show himself and say that he is both a just God and a Savior. He can save in a just way and at the same time be a loving father. And he can do it through this mediator, through this medium. There's no other way that that can be done. He saves dirty, wretched sinners without getting his own hands dirty because there is a mediator. It's his mediator and it's our mediator. That is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. In short, he's just when he justifies. I can think, I could probably go out on a limb and say another way of saying what we're talking about is the glory of God in Christ. Look at Romans 3. It talks about this this kind of language here um, about God being a just God and Savior. Verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation that's satisfaction of all justice, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that, so that is what that means, so that he might be just in the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Do you see how that how it's spelled out, how justification in verse 24 and then the, the performance of it, which, which accomplished it in verse 25, is said the reason why it's done that way is so that God could be this. It enables him to be both a just God and Savior. This is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. This is the only way that it can be done. This was what was decreed. This was the purpose of God. This was the performance of Christ. This is what the record of the gospel tells us. And this is what the believer turns around and believes exactly the same thing that those other three, three things are harmonious about. So for the gospel, and this is important, especially for evangelism, for the gospel even to be the gospel, it must have this ingredient in it of this righteousness that Christ established that met the demands of the requirement of God, which is satisfaction of his law and justice. Last point, from faith to faith, back in our text, 
talks about, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, just shall live by faith. Now, we kind of touched on this idea of from faith to faith when I talked about how that the Spirit of God comes and imparts life and engrafts the Word of God, specifically the Gospel, in the new heart, and it causes the believer to be in union with Christ by faith. So what it does is, from the first part, from faith, is talking about the faith. In other words, the, the body of doctrine, the message of the gospel. Remember in Jude, it says, contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. Contend for this body of doctrine, this message, the gospel. So that's what it's saying. From faith, from this message to faith, the faith that God creates in you by that gospel, by the power of the Spirit. And then after that, the just shall live by that self-same faith. From then on, which kind of just is another witness that we shouldn't be done with the gospel. It's the thing that we continue to feed on. That first was the means through the power of the Spirit and the gospel to give us this life, this life in Christ that we live by faith, looking to him, pointing back to him every time. We're reminded every week, hopefully every day, reminded of him, the object of our faith. There's our assurance. We keep looking back at our assurance so we don't continue to say, I've graduated from the gospel. I'm looking inside and um, take heed where you stand lest you fall because that's you're going to fall. And great will be the fall thereof, right? Just like in Matthew 7 about doing the will of the Father. And it's compared when you don't do the will of the Father, which means, believe this, this message. When you don't do the will of the Father, you're on sinking sand. And the house is going to fall, and great will be the fall thereof. So from faith to faith means from the gospel to the believer. Now we could have we could have milked that for all that it's worth. That, that there's a bunch more stuff in there, but I went as fast as I could. So I hope that will kind of remind us the importance uh, of this gospel and how we utilize it in our own personal lives in the church. And and another thing I've been thinking of a lot lately is just the supremacy and the and the really. We need to see more more value in the Word of God, because any any form of theological liberalism starts at like discounting the Word of God as as any authority at all. There's nothing wrong with having. We sang a song uh, about my faith is not in device or creed. And when we say creed, sometimes we're talking about articles of faith or confessions of faith. And there's there's nothing wrong with having those if they're biblical and they stay underneath the authority of Scripture. Let's not forget that. I know some denominations that preach through their, conf- their, their confessional churches. They preach through their confessions and they quote them like they're like on par of authority with Scripture. And then, of course, when I talk about I don't agree with Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter, I think it's 13 on sanctification. Ooh, man, get back from me. You are of the devil. No, it's it's against scripture. 
same, you know, I have got to say the same thing about the thing on baptism and in that same confession. But if if we go a long time with that, just going through the motions and talking about different things, and we sometimes we forget the supremacy of Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture. Like it's like we need to show more respect for the Word of God. So the truth of the gospel. Let's let's remember the gospel. Let's utilize the gospel. We just mentioned a few reasons, but it is for a lifetime, and it's for life in both those aspects we talked about for our lifetime and for our ongoing spiritual life. Anything before we sing a sing a song real quick and conclusion? Any questions, comments?